I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 32. We're going to pick up in the story of Jacob, Genesis 32, verse 22. And while you're turning, I want to remind you that we're not just looking at one story. This morning, we're going to cover a large chunk of scripture. We're going to cover four chapters. But in order to understand these four chapters, and more specifically, Genesis as a whole, these story types part of the Bible. In order to understand these, you've got to understand the big picture or the big theme of what God is doing in this book. And this big theme, almost sort of as an umbrella over Genesis is this, that God is sovereignly working out his will among his people for his purposes, which are ultimately going, we're going to see is that we're moving towards, hurtling towards Jesus Christ. That's what this story is about. That's what Genesis is about. The glory of God in the face of Christ. So if you've got your, if you found chapter 32, verse 22, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford at the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word. It's totally focused on who you are. It finds its place in you. So God, this morning, I pray that you would open your word to our hearts and to our minds. I pray that we would be in submission to it, that we would take the submissive position beneath it, that we would allow it to instruct us in all things, life and godliness. I pray that you would be seen to be big and beautiful and glorious this day. Amen. You may be seated. So we've got this big story of what God is doing in Genesis. We've been walking with Jacob for several weeks now. And if you will recall, after he deceives his father Isaac and steals his brother's birthright, he leaves because Esau has told him, I'm going to kill you. And so he is sent to live with his uncle Laban. And in chapter 28, verse 15, on his way out of the promised land, God causes him to go to sleep and he lays his head upon a rock and God gives him this glorious vision. And in the vision, he sees heaven opened and there's this ladder coming down from heaven to earth. And there is God presiding over the ladder. And on the ladder, there's this continuous stream of angels going up and down. 
And God in that moment is communicating to Jacob that he's the sovereign over the entire earth. He's the sovereign over all that exists. He is controlling all that happens. There's nothing that is not under his lordship. And his angels, those who work out his power in the earth, are continuously flowing up and down doing his will. Therefore, there's nothing to fear for those who are in God. Because if God is in total control, what is to fear? So God gives this vision to Jacob as he leaves. Spends 20 years with Laban and he comes back. And on his way back into the promised land, God again encounters him with angels. Look at chapter 32, verse one. It says, Jacob went on his way. The angels of God met him. They met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim, which is Hebrew, and it translates two camps. So he sees these angels of God. We don't know exactly how many, but he uses the plural word, so we know there's more than one. And the idea seems to be that in this moment, Jacob is fleeing his uncle, whom he is left and Laban is very angry with him and he's going back to the promised land where Esau awaits him and all he knows about Esau is that Esau wanted to kill him. So in this moment of desperate fear, God sends his angels to remind Jacob, there's nothing to fear with Esau for I am God. There's nothing to fear with Laban for I am God. There's this reminder, as there was going out, there's this same reminder coming in. God presides over all of it. There's nothing to fear. And so we would think that at this moment in Jacob's life, this being not the first encounter with God, we would think his faith would be incredibly strong, that it would be robust, that it would be immovable, that nothing could move Jacob away from trusting and believing in the promises of God. We would think, and we would like to think of ourselves at this point, if this were us, we would be set on a trajectory for success in faith. But Jacob coming back into the promised land decides, I better appease Esau. I better let him know I'm coming. I better let him know what has happened to me. And so he sends messengers to Esau and he says, tell my brother I'm coming and tell him I'm rich. Tell him I mean him no harm. So the messengers go, they communicate to Esau and in chapter 32, verse six says, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. There are 400 men with him. So Jacob is afraid. And now reading this text, we would ask, why? Why are you afraid? What can 400 men do against God? What can 400 men do against angels? But I think Jacob, when we can, we can identify so precisely with this feeling that we immediately lose sight of God when something we deem more pressing comes into view, whether it's a bill that has to be paid or a family relationship that's broken or trouble at work or trouble with a child or anything. It's incredible how quick 
we can have this grandiose view of God and then we're looking like this, something small. So Jacob fears, but back up just a moment. Jacob's sighting of the angels was a visual confirmation of a far deeper and far more spiritual reality. Namely, that Jacob had been and would continue to be the object of God's grace. He would continue to receive God's grace. This intrusive, tenacious, contending, and renovating grace was at work in his life to make him the man that God would have him to be. Not that he hoped to be, not that he was striving to be, but that God would have him to be. So he receives the message from his, from his brother, his brother's coming. He has 400 men. And so in his fear and in his anxiety, Jacob acts. He makes a choice. He does something. It says he divided his camps. So he got this big camp, all his wives and children and possessions. He divides them into two. Now what's ironic and what arises from the original text is that it's the same word from verse two, Mahanaim, two camps of angels. He divides his things into two camps out of fear. So the angels and the visions and the promises of God are totally gone from his mind in this moment. When we fear and when we fall into anxiety and when we lose sight of God, it's incredible how fast, as I said, our vision becomes so narrow and so focused and our hearts lose themselves in that. But Jacob prays, he goes to God, he seeks God's face, but notice that he acts first and then he prays. He acts first, but then he prays. Look at verse nine of chapter 32. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. I'm not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant for with only my staff I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau for I fear him. It's a good prayer. It's an earnest prayer. You can, you can almost sense within his spirit that he's crying out to God, believing that if you don't answer this prayer, Lord, I'm going to die. But also notice that his prayer is an attempt to persuade God to agree with him. In his fear, he acted. And in his fear, he did what he thought was right, what would ensure his survival, how he could make it through. And then he asked God, God, I've done this. You know, I've kind of worked this out. And, and don't, don't forget, God, you blessed me and you told me to do this stuff. So will you, will you please make this work? Remember, you promised so that's the idea that Jacob's, that we see. Jacob is not responding in faith. He's not, he's not exercising the robust faith that he should have after seeing God. He's responding in fear and anxiety and he's treating God like God is manipulatable. How foolish. How common that is in my heart and how common that is in your heart. We, we are faced with something we see as a problem. And our retreat so often is not to God. Our retreat is to our own self-sufficient ingenuity. And friends, I can tell you from personal experience and from the truth of scripture, God will not have that. So God answers his prayer. 
read the text earlier, verse 22. Jacob sends all his stuff across the river. So it's the middle of the night. He knows Esau's coming. He's scared. He's anxious. He can't sleep. And so he decides at that moment, now it's the time to cross the river. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to cross a river, but in the daytime even, it's not easy. And now he decides in his anxiety, I'm gonna send my wives and my children and my servants and my possessions and my animals in the pitch black dark. Now is the time to cross. In his anxiety, he endangers not only his possessions and his family, but he acts in foolishness. And then as the text reads, he was left alone. You see, Jacob had expected to meet Esau in the promised land. But before he does, God meets Jacob. God comes to the scheming, deceiving, self-sufficient Jacob before he is allowed to enter God's promised land. And it says that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now keep in mind, Jacob has no idea who this is. Could be a thief, could be one of Esau's men, it could be Esau for all he knows. In the black, the pitch black, someone has taken a hold of him and it's a life or death struggle. And keep in mind, Jacob's not a weak man. Although it tells us when we first meet him that he dwells in tents, we learn in chapter 29 that he moved this massive rock that it you took two or three men to move. So he's not a weak man by any stretch of the imagination, but he's also an old man. So if we do a chronology on this, he's somewhere in his mid nineties at this moment. And so someone takes hold of him and they wrestle. And in his aloneness and in his fear and uncertainty, he's handled. He becomes the object of someone's fury. And in this incident, God is Jacob's adversary. And until this moment, this idea has never even entered Jacob's mind that God could oppose him like this. And so in the dark, in the struggle, Jacob wrestles. And I would say that many of us go to great lengths to believe the very thing Jacob believed about God. We will think of God in every possible way, except one who confronts and contradicts and corrects. We don't want to think of God like that. We want to think of God as Jacob often did, because you see, until now, for Jacob, God was this benign, friendly, heavenly father figure who could, he could turn to when things got rough who he could pray to when he was scared, but also a God that he could ignore when he wanted to order his own life. For Jacob, there was nothing to fear from God, but now he would discover God is not so used indefinitely. We need to understand that, that while God may not rain down immediate wrath on sin at this very moment, God is not passive with sin. God will have his justice. You know, Galatians says, God is not mocked. Don't be fooled. So Jacob had this false idea that he could treat God as a genie of sorts. And now he was discovering that it's not so. I want to give you an illustration from C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. 
In that story, the, the God character is this massive lion named Aslan. And in a conversation, Susan is asking Mr. Beaver about Aslan. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. He's the lion. He's the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he ain't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king. Responding to this story in one of his classes, a student said, Aslan is no tame lion. Jacob has a hold in this moment of Aslan. He has a hold, or rather he's being gripped by an untamable God. So they struggle and doesn't tell us precisely how long. It just says from the night until the break of day, a long time. They struggled and they held on to one another and they wrestled fiercely. And then it says, as the day broke, whoever he was wrestling with touched his hip. At a simple touch, it dislocated his hip joint. A man came up to me after the last service and said, I've had a hip, dislocated hip joint and it incapacitated me. The pain was unbearable, I couldn't move. And so at this moment, in incredible pain, Jacob begins to recognize this is not a man. I'm not wrestling with a man, I'm wrestling with some divine being. In intense pain, he continues on. And while the text tells us that Jacob's opponent could not overpower him, we need not read that as understanding Jacob was like physically besting the man. That's not what he's saying. Jacob was somehow actually contending here with God. For behind his human limitations in verses 24 and 25 was an awesome and infinite reserve of divine power. So at dawn, Jacob, uh, Jacob demands that the being bless him. Bless me. But God responds by asking Jacob his name. What is your name? You see, in the context of the Bible, to disclose one's name is an act of self-disclosure or tell me about your character. Tell me who you are. What's your deepest identity? And so the assailant in this moment, who is God, asks the question, what is your name? Or literally, he embarrasses Jacob. Who are you? And Jacob has to respond with a confession of guilt. I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a thief. I am rightly called a cheat. Instead of blessing him, the man embarrasses him. Hear the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So understand that this wrestling match is not some 
strange piece of the story that doesn't fit. It's not some abstract event. This wrestling match brought to a head the battling and the groping of Jacob's life. It's a, it's a picture of Jacob's life and how he related to God. It exhibits his, his love for God and his enmity against God. It showed his defiance of God's will and yet his utter dependence on him for all things. Jacob began to realize that it was against God that he had struggled all his life and not Esau and not Laban. But it would also, he'd also come to understand that the crippling and the naming, that God's ends were still the same. So we're thinking about that umbrella. What is God doing here? We begin to understand that in crippling Jacob and giving him a new name, he is sustaining the promise that he made that's ultimately gonna carry us to Christ. See, it was defeat and victory in one that Jacob was experiencing. This language of strength, it says that he strove with the angel and prevailed, but it also says he wept and sought his favor. And that's the language of weakness. And after God maimed him, Jacob's combativeness turned to utter dependence because Jacob emerged from, the, from, the, from that moment broken, named, and blessed. Jacob did not emerge from this match victorious in the sense of winning. Indeed, he had been viciously handled and overpowered, but his victory and his prevailing was found, as Paul said, in his being conquered. So many of us are like Jacob. We struggle independently of the God whom we say we love and whom we believe. We wanna be part of his plan, but we make our own plans. We never truly succeed. Then a crisis comes in which God lays his hand upon our lives and our lives become dislocated of sorts or like Jacob's hip, we're put out of joint. And like Jacob, we, we come to have this appalling sense of our own incompetence and our own weakness. And it's in that moment, just like Jacob, that God invites us to walk away limping or to walk away changed. You see, salvation is the maiming of our sinful flesh. It's the dislocating of all that is evil within us. God will not have self-righteous, proud people in his, in his people. To be such a person is to oppose everything that God is. Salvation is a breaking of all the self-trust that we have in our own will. So think about this with me for a moment. When we think about suffering, we all hate suffering. We don't want it. And some of us hate it even to the point of doubt. In the midst of hardship and suffering, which we often define as simply things not going our way, we ask questions like, God, why me? Or why would you let this happen to me or my family? Or why that person? We ask these questions. And what we must understand is that the gospel does not prevail in our triumphs. The gospel does not prevail in our emotional satisfaction. The gospel prevails in the undoing of our natural selves. The gospel prevails when you are totally emptied of your old self and totally filled with all the glory and perfection and righteousness of King Jesus. The gospel prevails when we are undone of our trust in our own abilities and refocused to trust only in God. See, the nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him. 
And God's renaming of Jacob is not without meaning. Not only is it a rejection of the old Jacob, it's a bestowing of a new name and a new identity and a new character. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Second Corinthians 5, the old has gone, behold, the new has come. I hope you are seeing the gospel in Genesis. So we would think again, after all this struggle, after Jacob contends with God and is maimed and weakened and, weakened and changed, that if not yet now, his faith would be robust. He would walk away from this changed, as it said, and he would never again struggle with sin. We wanna believe that about him. We'd like to believe that about ourselves if this were us. But our second point is this, that Jacob and his family persist still in sin. Chapters 33 and 34, while we're not gonna spend much time here, I wanna overview the events because they're important. Chapters 32 through 35 are all tied together. They're all one story. They all depend on one another. So in chapter 32, God renames Jacob through this physical encounter, through this wrestling. He gives him this crippling limp, which is a mark of that grace, that merciful encounter through which God empties him of his self-distrust and reorients him to trust only in God. But we find in chapter 33 in verses 12 through 20, when he finally does meet Esau and God has foreordained that it be a good reunion, Jacob lies to him. Esau invites Jacob and his family to come live with them and Jacob lies and said that he will, but then goes another way. He never has any intention of following Esau and yet his self-sufficiency and his doubt are still so strong. It just dismisses all that has happened. So what I want you to see is that the sins of Jacob and the sins that follow, both his and his, and his families, they have direct, they are direct consequences of Jacob's half-hearted obedience. Even after all of this that's already happened, Jacob still struggles with half-hearted obedience. He lies to Esau. He fails to return to Beth El, chapter 28, where God comes and greets, meets him in that vision. He names it Beth El. And God commands him, you are to return to Beth El. And on his way there, he comes upon a place called Shechem, which we understand is about a day's journey short of Beth El. And that's where he settles. See, Shechem offered to Jacob the attractions of a compromise. His summons was to Beth El, but Shechem, about a day's journey short of it, stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. So Jacob had become this wealthy man, and he comes almost to where God called him and realizes, I can stay right here, which is pretty close to where God called me to be, but I can also, uh, I can also gain more wealth here. I can plant myself here. I can make much of myself here and still be close to where God has called me to. He even builds an altar in Shechem and worships God. But it was disobedience nonetheless. His religious act of real, building an altar, claiming his new name, doesn't change that. Our actions don't change the way that our heart truly is. So he failed in his half-hearted obedience. He fails as a parent. See, in chapter 34, his daughter, his only daughter is defiled. And then the man who defiled his daughter comes and seeks her hand in marriage. 
And it's hard for us to even grasp what's going on, how Jacob can handle this. But what we see is that Jacob handles it quite passively. He just accepts the information. He doesn't react. He doesn't get angry. He just accepts it. So he fails to protect his daughter. And then we'll also see his sons commit genocide by slaughtering the entire city. And when he receives information of that, his response is, well, now you've made me look bad. We'll have to leave. Still an incredibly self-centered, self-focused man. So he fails his family. He fails in his obedience to God and it will have implications and consequences for the rest of the people of Israel's history. See, because of Jacob's sin and half-hearted obedience, his people will find themselves slaves in Egypt. But even after the events of 33, chapters 33 and 34, God's plan, that sovereign umbrella, if you will, is not undone. It's still being carried out. It's still being accomplished. We come to chapter 35 where God reapplies the blessing. God will not be undone by the sinful acts of men. That should, that should speak to our hearts. It should reassure our hearts that in a world today where it seems like God is absent, what we learn is that God is ever present. And not that just that he is ever present, he is sovereign over it. And not just that he is sovereign over it, but he is actively working out the goodness of his will in, amidst, in amongst it. That his sovereignty is not undone by the foolishness of men. We tend to think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as these great men of faith who did not struggle, who God spoke to and encountered in all these magnificent ways. We tend to think of them as men who just lived lives of robust faith. And what we should learn from this is that that thought should be foreign to our minds, that these were great men of God who had great depths of sin every day, that they failed more than they accomplished. And yet God's promise is sustained. You see, sanctification in the Bible, and sanctification is just that word for being made more like Jesus, the work that God does in our hearts. Being sanctified into the likeness of God is not ever shown or taught to be an instantaneous process, although we would like it to be. It's never shown to be a momentary thing. It's shown to be a long life of obedience. I keep a quote in the front of my Bible that says, the Christian life is long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. That's what sanctification is. And what we see in the life of Jacob is that God is faithful to work out his purposes in the lives of sinful men and women. He's still working it out. Look at chapter, five, chapter 35, verse nine. God is going to reapply the blessing to this wicked man. God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, God said to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give you the land. I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him. God reaffirms the blessing. 
God reaffirms that his promise from Genesis 28, 15, that he'll never leave Jacob. He reaffirms it. Even after all this sin that Jacob persisted in and led his family in, God is not undone by all these things. He is still sovereignly working out his will over all these things. He uses the phrase El Shaddai, God Almighty is doing these things. So the renaming of Jacob points to his own inability to carry out the promises in his own power. It had to be God and it had to be God alone. So we see the strength and grace of God to fulfill his promises. We see the hope of Jesus. We see that he's coming. The life of Jacob is about almighty God who delivers his sinful people and fulfills his word amidst the residuals of sin. And so we see that the gospel clearly is evident in Genesis, in the renaming of Jacob, in the sustaining of a sinful people, in the fulfilling of the promises. So we come to ask, what do we take away from this? What's the point of this? I want to ask you a question. Are you seeing the faithfulness of God, the glory of God in the story of Genesis? Are you seeing the gospel in Genesis? Are you recognizing the masterful work of God and keeping his promises and sustaining his people and forbearing and forgiving sin? Are you seeing his promises in restoring his broken people? Are you recognizing that despite the presence of sin, God is undeterred in his mission? But are you also recognizing that God is not passive with sin? Are you recognizing that the God of Genesis, the God who overcame Jacob's self-sufficient will is the very God who now speaks through this word today? So I ask, have you encountered the Lord? Are you clinging to him in the emptiness of yourself? Are you clinging to him at the, at the end of yourself when there's nothing left to give, when there's only to lose? Are you clinging to God like Jacob? demanding that he bless you. God bless me, I have nothing else. I'm empty, I'm broken. I've been maimed in my flesh and all I have is you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. He's discussing what true faith looks like. He's teaching what it, a picture of real Christianity looks like. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 21, Jesus says these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not do mighty works in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want to briefly return to Jacob because I don't want us to miss this point. That although God is sovereign over all things, that God is working out his perfect will in all things, Jacob is never given a pass for his sins. He paid dearly for all that he had done. His family paid dearly for all that he had done. And his salvation is only because of the precious 
work and grace of God. Therefore, as I said earlier, Jacob's life calls us to a life of repentance and deep faith. So believer, this morning, are you struggling with half-hearted obedience of being close to what God has called you to do and yet holding on to what you want for your life? If so, repent for God is gracious. Unbeliever, if you are not a Christian, hope you recognize that God is speaking to you at this very moment, not me, but his word. He's calling you from your sins. He's calling you to forsake the foolishness of self-sufficiency. He's calling you to forsake all that is in opposition to him. He's calling you to himself. Do not delay. Do not harden your heart. For he is a gracious God. Would you pray with me? God, you are good and steadfast. You are mighty. You are almighty. You are El Shaddai. God, you've revealed these things to us in your word. God, I pray this morning that as we have read from your word and received from your word, God, that our hearts would be humbled, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would break us of foolish self-sufficiency, and that you would call us to full dependency on you. You're not honored, God, when we strive in our own power. You're not honored when we make much of ourselves and we are foolish to think otherwise. God, as we're about to sing, you hold us fast. You will not let us go. You did not let Jacob go. So Lord, in Christ, remind us that we are held steady. God, remind your people of your promises and save those who are not apart yet apart. It's in your great name that we pray, amen.